This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser, along with Bloomberg Quick Takes, Tim Stenovic. And a lot of headlines. Tim and I just breaking them down for some of our audiences. But uh, what's interesting is Bloomberg does a COVID resilience ranking. It's a measure of the best places to be in the COVID-19 era. And the U.S. ranking drops steeply uh, as we've seen the death toll surge with one American dying from the virus every 41 seconds over the past month. Yeah, it's been it's been shocking to see the way that other countries have handled it so much better than we have. But that at this point is like an old story, except for the fact that it keeps getting worse here in the U.S. by many metrics. Right, exactly. All right, so let's get into it. Uh, Global 19, uh, COVID-19 cases right now passing 76.8 million. So let's bring in Dr. Sophia Thomas, president of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, uh, a doctor of nursing practice herself. um, And uh, she joins us on the phone in Louisiana, along with Bloomberg News health team editor John Lowerman. He's on the phone from Boston. So John, I do want to start with you because Tim and I have been talking a little bit about this mutation of the virus. What do we need to know and what do we need to know about the COVID-19 vaccine and our protection against this mutation? Well, I would say at this point, we need to know almost everything. Um, (laughs) There just isn't a lot of information out there. There have been some uh, reports of the mutations that are in this virus. It just isn't in this uh, particular strain. Um, The uh, UK government uh, has been saying that they believe this uh, strain spreads more easily. Uh, Montes Flowey, who is the um, scientific director of Operation Warp Speed, said in a press conference today that he hasn't seen any hard evidence of that. So I think, you know, the, the jury is still out on what, you know, exactly what this um, strain is, um, what it does, and um, uh, whether it has any impact on vaccines. Now, uh, the EMA, the European Medicine Agent, Medicines Agency that just uh, approved Pfizer and BioNTech's vaccine today, said that they did not believe it would have an impact um, on the effectiveness of that vaccine. So... I think, you know, more work is going to be uh, needed to be done on this, but we really don't have any solid concrete answers yet. When will we get those solid concrete answers? I mean, do they have to actually do a clinical trial with this new strain in order to... I think a clinical trial is what's needed. I think you, you know, so the way that the vaccines work just in general, you know, um, just to kind of recap is they raise these antibodies. The antibodies are called neutralizing antibodies. They show the, the immune system a protein and that sparks the um, development of these antibodies. And so you need to know, um, you can probably tell in the test tube, but uh, whether or not these antibodies are the same antibodies that the body makes in response to the vaccine are going to neutralize this mutant strain. And then, of course, the other issue is, you know, you'll see it in the activity uh, uh, of, the, um, of the vaccine going forward. But, um, yeah, I don't think another clinical trial is in order right now. All right. I want to bring in Dr. Sophia Thomas. So, Dr. Thomas, nice to have you uh, along with John here. So, John really laying out 
kind of what we need to understand about this mutation and uh, how the vaccine will protect us against it. Tell us about your observations with this news and what you're thinking about, especially when it comes to other nurse practitioners and, and those folks that uh, you are working with. Well, you know, since COVID-19 has started, really, the news has changed every day, right? We've had um, uh, new news. Things are trending. We learn new things literally every day. And that's why all the scientists, my hat goes off to all the scientists who are really monitoring this closely. You know, as, as this continues to develop, we'll see. But I think for the most part, those of us on the front lines of healthcare will continue to, to do what we do every day, masking up, um, using our PPE, social distancing, and, and recommending that for our patients and, and the general public. You know, this virus is transmitted from person to person. There's no question about that. And, and the one thing that we can do to really help prevent the spread is for all of us to do our part, really be good neighbors neighbors, and uh, use the protective equipment, wash our hands, social distance, wear those masks, um, even just out to the grocery store. And, you know, you may be fine. You may be carrying the, the virus and not even realize it. But, you know, people have the risk of transmitting it to other people. And, and we know now that it's not just impacting um, the most elderly and, and the most sickly, um, although um, it's, those are the significant numbers of people who are impacted, but we're having perfectly healthy people that are having uh, suffering from complications from COVID that were, you know, unforeseen. So every day with this virus, we're learning more. We're learning more about the virus, um, the mutations, as well as all the, the downstream complications that can arise um, after having this. So, Dr. Thomas, to that end, and when it comes to the vaccine, what are you advising members of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners? And, and when do you think they will be completely vaccinated? Because they are among those who are on the front lines. Well, we act, actually this week already have our, our colleagues in, that are working in hospital systems being vaccinated. And I'm so proud to see all their posts on social media. You know, we want to get the word out to the general public that we in healthcare are ready, willing, and able and happy to take this vaccine. And when your number comes up, um, it's certainly, we encourage everybody to get vaccinated as soon as possible. Um, we support the CDC recommendations regarding the prioritization of the at-risk population, um, you know, including the frontline health workers and seniors and those with comorbid conditions. And we really look forward to um, not only working with the federal, state, and local authorities to ensure the most effective and efficient vaccination process possible to protect the health of patients nationwide, but we look forward to the day when when all Americans can say they've been vaccinated right. and they're protected. Um, you know, you know, John. I want to go back to you or kick it off with you here uh, for this block. You've got a story on the Bloomberg about vaccines don't mean we'll see the last of COVID. You've been talking to experts. Um, this disease is going to be with us, what, for a f for a really long time, maybe forever? Well, uh, that's hard to say. I think the point is the vaccines that we have that are coming online for COVID right now, they look actually very good. Um, and uh, I think that it's, it's um, as we've heard, uh, uh, medical people want to take these vaccines and they want to protect themselves. So there's nothing wrong with the vaccine. The issue is that mass vaccination programs often take a long time. They aren't always uh, completely successful. And as a matter of fact, we know that the only one of only one disease that's really been uh, eradicated as a result of vaccine, and that's smallpox. But people have been trying to eliminate 
um, diseases like polio for decades. And it's just very difficult to do. It's very difficult to get everybody to take a vaccine at the same time. And when you don't have the entire population vaccinated, you have talked to people who are unvaccinated, and then they tend to affect one, infect one another, and then other people who, who, for whatever reason, don't have the vaccine or decline to take the vaccine, those people become infected as well. And then so you, you have this right. continual reservoir that can last to last. And that's basically the idea. So it's very difficult, despite the, uh, despite the existence of effective vaccines, to actually eliminate or eradicate the disease. So what does that mean for the future, John? Does it mean that we're going to have COVID hotspots like we do with other diseases that we've tried to eradicate? Or does it mean that it will sort of always be lurking there? I think there's a good possibility, or at least this is what my sources told me, that it won't be eradicated. It's an extremely contagious disease. Um, Diseases that have been eradicated or the lone disease that's been eradicated, smallpox, is not actually all that contagious. But, um, you know, as we've talked yeah. about a little bit, uh, this new strain uh, may be sort of more transmissible. Mm. But COVID is known to, you know, uh, reach people um, who are working 20 feet apart from each other in meatpacking plants. God, that's terrifying. Uh, it's a very contagious yeah. disease. That's yeah. terrible. Dr. Thomas, I want to bring you back in because I know something that you've been focusing certainly is about some of the inequities about, about there. You know, we are concerned that everybody gets access to the vaccine ultimately. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, ultimately that, that's the goal and that's the ideal. But, ideal. but as, as John just said, you know, getting everybody to take that vaccine is, is going to be quite difficult. So, so COVID will probably be with us for a long time. And, you know, I, you know, I'm proud to be a nurse, part of the, one of the most trusted professions. And, and I, I, you know, call my nursing colleagues to encourage patients as much as possible to take it. Um, we also don't know how long um, we're going to have that immunity from the vaccine. And we might be looking at a, a situation where we get the vaccine annually. Um, it might be part of our annual flu vaccine. We right. just don't know yet. There's a lot of um, there are a lot of unknowns. Um, so, Dr. Thomas, but, what is what is the way that you communicate to patients, and you tell your nurse practitioners to communicate to patients that this is a vaccine that they need to get, especially when there is so much skepticism out there? And just got about forty seconds here. Absolutely. The, you know, the message to patients is we have a vaccine that's available that can help uh, prevent you from getting COVID-19, uh, ho- hopefully prevent you from getting it and spreading it to another person. And then the message is always at the end of the day, wear a mask, social distance, practice proper infection control measures. Right, right. We know over and over everyone says that that's what works. Um, thank you so much. Dr. Sophia Thomas, president of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, with us on the phone from Louisiana. John Lauerman, health team editor at Bloomberg News, on the phone from Boston. You can check him at Lauerman John on Twitter and also, of course, at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Gotta say, this is our world in a headline. It's been a great year for stocks and a bear market for humans. Investors ignoring the pain of the pandemic and betting on a future where, uh, well, we'll just let... Uh, Maybe the- in the future we'll come back as stocks and not humans. <laughs> I don't know. I'll let, I'll let the next two uh, explain it all. <laughs> Michael Regan is senior editor and lead blogger of Bloomberg Markets Live blog. He's with us from New Jersey. Also Bloomberg Business Week editor, Joel Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. It is that headline, Joel, just sums up our year so perfectly. 
Yeah, and it's almost like you don't need to read the story, but you should because yes, you it should. puts it all in one place for you. Um, and and coming back as a stock sounds sounds kind of <laughs> terrible, but um, <laughs> maybe not in twenty twenty. Maybe not in twenty twenty. Uh, you, you know, uh, this is like one of the great joys of my job is being able to like just you know, reach out to somebody like Mike Reagan and be like, Mike. Um, feel like we need to do some business together and he comes back with something like this which started with some thoughts about big numbers um and some of them are are kind of humbling so so mike walk us through uh how you arrived at the story yeah so uh, you know i feel like the whole year we've all been sort of really had this fixation on these statistics that have just been crossing in the headlines every day just eye-popping numbers that we never thought we'd ever see in our lifetimes, whether it be, you know, the millions of jobs lost and recovered, you know, uh, 300,000 and counting deaths from this virus. Just a lot of people talk about it as the year that where all charts were broken, because if you look at so many different statistics, uh, 2020 is just so off the map that you can't even figure out what's going on in other years. But to me, it's just this been this dichotomy all year that has just, I think, been surprising and um, sort of alarming to a lot of people, just uh, how well the market's done in, in the face of just such heartbreaking um, human suffering, you know, not only the, the sickness and the deaths, but just so many people still out of work. We're still down about 10 million jobs from where we were before the pandemic something like 27 million people uh, in the country that don't have enough to eat. And yet the market is acting like it's, you know, the best of times or at least expecting the best of times. So, I, you know, we cover the markets every day, sort of every twist and turn of, of the tape on any given day. It just felt like a good time to step back and say, wow, what just happened this year? What, what, what is the deal with this sort of this disparity Right. between these heartbreaking economic and human suffering statistics and these stock market statistics that are just off the charts good. Um, so that was a, an attempt to sort of reconcile those two and try to just you know, take a step back, take a breath, and, and write about what a bizarre year it was from that perspective. Yeah. So here we are at almost at the end of the year with a little bit of, ben's, of the benefit of hindsight. What has allowed the market to be so disconnected from Main Street? I think there's a couple things. Um, for one, obviously, the Fed keeping interest rates as low as they did and sort of inoculating the corporate credit market and buying up a lot of treasuries every month. It's kind of almost, you know, forced this uh, risk-seeking behavior in financial markets. Um, at the same time, for those of us who were lucky enough to keep our jobs this year, you know, we're, there was really no option to spend that sort of discretionary money that you would have spent on, say, taking a, a, a vacation somewhere, going to a baseball game or a concert. So, I, you know, I think there's evidence that a lot of that savings ended up getting put to work in the stock market. Mm. And the rest, I think, Wall Street is looking at with bug eyes, this huge yeah. savings rate that Americans had this year, and thinking that you know, once the, the world is back to normal, that there's just kind of this bottleneck of demand, a bottleneck of money and savings that, that should get sort of trickled back, maybe even gushing back into the economy 
once we're all you know, able to go out and, and enjoy the world again. But the only thing, you know, Mike, there's a line in your story. Investors seem to uh, be betting on a permanent shift in the structure of work and the economy. I do think, we were just talking about real estate, Tim and I, you know, that we're seeing people buy up some distressed assets. I do think that there are going to be structural changes, whether it's retail, whether it's medicine, whether it's education, whether it's how we use real estate. I do think there's going to be things that are lasting. And I think to some extent, investors are seeing past that or and, and incorporating I, I, that in. I, I agree, Carol, and I think you know there's a very interesting. I'm actually recycled that uh, that stat from the story that my colleague Sarah Ponzak did mm-hmm. early in the year. She talked to uh, Vincent Delaware, who's a strategist at the Stone X Brokerage, and he ran some numbers that showed that the companies that are least dependent on their human workforce uh, this year just totally killed it in the stock market. Did way better than companies that are very dependent on human workforce. And I, you know, I, it, it's a lonely thing to think about. I think it's a kind of a depressing thing to think about. But obviously, the stock market forever has sort of rewarded companies that are able to, to reduce labor costs, to, to cut those costs to the bone. And that that phenomenon, that tendency to sort of, you know, always improve those margins, even if it's at the expense of, of human workers, I think that tendency really uh, was t- turbocharged this year um, yeah. because of the pandemic and because of this sort of acceleration in technology trends and sort of a bringing forward of the demand that a lot of companies um, presumably would have had in the future to sort of automate more of their workforce or to, you know, sort of get ahead of the technology curve uh, as a margin-boosting element of their business. So, um, you know, a a really alarming thing to happen when we saw the job market decimated the way it was. Um, you know, Mike. The the other thing that's worth mentioning here is the something of an outlier to the the robot trend. Number two uh, best performing stock in S and P five hundred, Etsy. I love that. <laughs> so can you, can you talk about that? And 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 if you came back as a stock, would you be Etsy or something else? <laughs> Not that there's know. anything wrong with being it's Etsy, Joel Weber. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting. Sort of exception to the rule that uh, presumably this huge rally in Etsy is a good sign for all the, the people knitting and, and potters and crafters at home. Uh, uh, but, but Great source of Christmas presents in my household, just totally. for the record. <laughs> No, but it says a lot. I mean, that just blows. It's up 329, almost 330%. Wow. Uh, yeah. Actually, uh, right. was it one of the CBS news uh, programs? It might have been CBS Sunday or somebody did showed a couple of uh, people who who've been who just like kind of got onto Etsy recently, and it's just you know it's like a mother and a daughter making candles. Uh, it's pretty amazing um, how they just kind of find their way. Yeah, and um, look, the invest and investors this year have loved the company's stock. I guess the totally. question is, you know, can it continue? Yeah, well, and there's people who find something and then, like, stick with it. Um, Great, great story. Mike Regan, as always, as Joel says, you know, I need something interesting. Hey, Mike, what are you up to? Uh, And Mike always delivers. Mike Regan is senior editor and lead blogger at Bloomberg Markets Live blog on the phone from New Jersey. Check him out at Regan Anonymous uh, on uh, Twitter and also at Bloomberg.com. Joel Weber, of course, editor at Bloomberg Business Week. And you can check out the new issue at Bloomberg Business Week magazine, which is all about kind of how our work world has changed dramatically, the urban access 
it is. It's my favorite color cover that we've had. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. You know, it's interesting. I was listening to David Weston earlier and he had on Nicholas Burns of the Harvard Kennedy School who said that the recent cyber attack on the U.S. government and corporations and think tanks may turn out to be the largest cyber attack on the U.S. up to this point. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty significant. So we're kind of unpacking this. So let's get into it and what you need to know. With us right now is Bloomberg News cybersecurity editor Andy Martin on the phone in New Jersey, along with Neil Bridges, who's cybersecurity advisor at Root Access Protection, consultant for tech training from INE. He is on the phone from Chicago. And Andy, I want to start off with you briefly, just kind of set the stage. Where are we in terms of what we know about this? Because I know a bunch of officials, including Attorney General William Barr, said uh, that this was likely carried out by Russia. Other administration officials have also said the same. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's still very early days. I mean, this is a, um, was a very clever and sophisticated attack that, that targeted um, a popular software program that's used to manage IT by, by government agencies and companies around the world. So um, basically, whoever uh, updated the software between March and June of last year um, uh, may have gotten a, uh, a kind of a backdoor that these hackers installed in it that they could then go back and, and sort of use it as a sort of staging ground for an attack. So um, this company, Solar Winds, who produced the software, said as many as 18,000 customers may have gotten this malicious backdoor. So what's happening now is um, customers of Solar Winds are going into their networks they're trying to identify whether or not they, they have this malicious update. And after that, it comes the hard part, which is trying to figure out if these hackers actually entered their network. Um, right. You know, there's a lot of reasons that it's difficult. But one is, you know, the, the way the software operates, as I understand it, is, you know, they would have um, administrative um, credentials when they're in these networks and they're, they're hard to track because they look like a an authorized user. So, right. um, so far, it looks like it's the Russians, but um, again, it's early right. days. William Barr said that, um, um, and Mike Pompeo said that. So, but not the president. Says it's China. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it looks like it's the Russians. It, it, so, Neil, I want to bring you you in here, uh, cybersecurity advisor at Root Access Protection. I'm wondering, given your career, where does what we know about this hack and what you've seen thus far, where does it fall on the spectrum of what you've seen? Um, thanks, Tim. I appreciate that. And, and thanks for having me on. I think this definitely represents, I think, what a lot of us are calling in the industry as as, as close to the, uh, the the cybersecurity Pearl Harbor as I think wow. we've, uh, we, we've come in the, in the number of years. Not um, good. Given, you know, say what? I said not good. <laughs> no, no. And I, I, I think um, you, you hear you hear Andy talk about, you know, potentially 18,000 customers have, have installed this just to, to understand the size of this plume, SolarWinds is installed in over 300,000, you know, environments across the, the globe, and, and that's been whittled down to, you know, just what the community's been able to detect about potentially 18,000, um, you know, that could have had this malicious backdoor installed. One of the things that we have to look at, though, is that if this is indeed the Russians, if it does indeed prove to be, you know, you know, definitively the Russians, and this does end up being an espionage campaign, then that really only narrows it down to about probably the top 50, you know, companies that would have allowed them to basically further their strategic advantage, um, you know, from a, a Russian cyber attack perspective. Yeah, it's really it's fascinating. Like Lockheed Martin, Microsoft. 
Well, and hang on for a second. I just want to uh, tell our audience that right now, President-elect uh, Joe Biden is getting ready to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, actually, he just got it. Uh, so just wanted to bring it to everyone. And we know uh, various officials uh, around the world were seeing that happen. But again, President-elect Joe Biden just getting the COVID-19 vaccine. So watching that, but also watching the cybersecurity. So, Neil, I mean... Um, should this not have happened? Uh, Solar Winds is saying that they warned of lack security. What happened here? Um, I, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's fair to say that this shouldn't happen. I think one of the things that that is critical in our industry is that we we assume a breach mentality. I think. It's, hey, Neil, I'm sorry. Well, Hang on for a second. We just want to take uh, everyone to where Joe Biden is, President-elect Joe Biden, because he is making some comments. Listen in, everyone. My next visit, and uh, but the important thing is that it's worth stating that, uh, you know, this is just the beginning. It's one thing to get the vaccine out, and now Moderna is, uh, is, is going to be on the road as well. <clears throat> but it's going to take time. It's going to take time. In the meantime, I know I don't want to sound like a sour note here, but uh, I hope people listen to all the experts and the Dr. Fauci's on talking about the need to wear masks during this Christmas and New Year's holidays, wear masks, socially distance, and, uh, and if you don't have to travel, don't travel. Don't travel. It's really important because we're still in the thick of this. It's one thing to have the vaccine show up at a hospital. There's another thing to get the vaccine from that vial into a needle, into an arm. And uh, there's uh, millions of people out there that are going to need this, frontline workers first. But I just want to thank everyone for all that they've done. There's some real heroes, some real heroes, and you're among them. Thank you. All right, you're seeing President-elect Joe Biden. Uh, for those of you, obviously, in radio can't see this, we're just watching uh, a live feed. President-elect Joe Biden fist-bumping uh, the healthcare uh, individual who just administered the COVID-19 vaccine to him. So, um, again, uh, we're starting to see, you know, a lot of people and certainly our higher officials, Joe, um, President-elect Joe Biden, of course, uh, older and certainly makes sense for him to be getting that vaccine. Right. We saw, yeah, and it, it absolutely does. We saw a lot of members of Congress too posting photos from over the weekend of getting, of, it, right? of, of getting the vaccine. Yeah. All right. So watching that, of course, COVID nineteen. We do want to get back to our guests and our apologies uh, for the interruption. We are talking about this cyber attack on the U.S. government and companies. Andy Martin still with us, cybersecurity editor at Bloomberg News. Neil Bridge is still with us, cybersecurity advisor at Root Access Protection Consultant for Tech Training Firm, INE. So, Neil, um, I was saying you were you were talking about, and I kind of said, you know, should should this have happened? I mean, Solar Winds was kind of there was an advisor there. Um, this was the company that uh, warned, you know, his management management of cybersecurity risks and had laid out a plan to improve it, but was ultimately ignored. Um, or, is it just maybe more surprising that something like this didn't happen sooner rather than now? A- absolutely, Carol, and that's what okay. I was saying before. Is that I think I think what companies have to do is they have to assume. Um, you know, a breach mentality, and this is why a focus on the people and the training is is incredibly important. You know, you you cited in this in this instance, they didn't listen to the folks when when these types of security vulnerabilities were highlighted 
um, coming from the teams that are ultimately responsible for the security inside of SolarWinds. Um, I think that that shows just a, a lack of transparency and a lack of accountability um, at the highest levels of leadership in an organization like SolarWinds um, to not be able to, to take that information into consideration and be able to protect not just their own data, but the valuable access that they have to over, you know, over, over, you know, the, the course of the 300,000 clients that they have globally. Yeah. I, I mean, I, one thing I would like to ask Neil about, I mean, sure. Within our story today about SolarWinds, I, I, I mean, it, it does appear that SolarWinds had some security issues um, historically where they didn't address some of the things that the, their cyber advisors were recommending. But, you know, these hackers, whether they're Chinese or Russian or, or U.S., are, extremely talented um and my sense is that if they really want to get into a network even if they would have had really good defenses they, they probably could i mean neil what do you say your sense 100 100 agree and that's that's why i get back to you know organizations you know need to need to adopt a mindset that it's not a matter of if they're going to get hacked it's a matter of when they're going to get hacked um, that way they can focus on, you know, you know, the identification of, of these types of tales of, of when their organization may be compromised, being able to respond faster to those, those indicators. And then we need to have more transparency, and that needs to be driven, um, you know, by consumers, by organizations, and by Wall Street um, so that we get more, you know, more, more forthcoming information about these cyber attacks so that we can, uh, we can respond to them, you know, appropriately. So, Andy, what, what happens now? What do we see play out over the next few months as companies discover their vulnerabilities and the data that was accessed? Well, I, I mean, I think the big question we don't know is the, the, the potential scope of this, is, as Neil pointed, uh, alluded to, is huge. But we don't know what they took or what they were looking for. And I think, you know, there's this painstaking investigative process going forward in these U.S. agencies and in, and in um, private companies that were breached to try to go and retrace the hackers' steps to figure out what they got, what they were looking for, what their motive is. We don't know what the motive is, right? We don't know what they were looking for in the Treasury Department or the Department of Homeland Security or what might have been stolen. And so um, I think now the process is just trying to, like, retrace uh, and, 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 and assess the damage. Hmm. Well, in, with, all, with all due respect to that, Andy, I think um, – you know, we may never know what they were trying to access on the government side, but one thing's for certain is that companies like Microsoft and Cisco um, and some of these other large-name organizations that were, you know, also impacted by, by the security breach, we know that these adversaries, if they were indeed on an espionage campaign, were utilizing those companies to, to gain access to some of these other government entities. Um, I, I think that those organizations should start to look and see what, what interconnectivity that they have with, a, with other high-profile clients, and that would be right. a good indicator as to, to some of the other ones that they may have access to. So, I don't know, Neil, you know, what's interesting is, too, I wonder, like, what do we learn from this? Um, you're a former member of the U.S. Air Force's, I think, Network Warfare, Warfare Unit, excuse me, so you served at Cyber Command there. Um, what is it that the government now is going... What is it that the government is going to have to do differently now um, and really just to make sure that our systems are secure? We're talking about really serious parts of our government that, that you know, were attacked and people got access to. 
absolutely and i think i think the the, the first thing is to, to break down a little bit of that barrier right is that this is this is another day in the office for for the government especially the, the network warfare teams both on the offense and the defensive side this this just happens to be one that made it you know kind of bubbled up to the top from a, a news perspective so so you know it, it is another day in the office i think what what makes this one different right is that it has bled over into um, having some some real commercial impact and i think that what that really highlights for you know, folks who may be listening or, or, or worried about their companies or their organizations is that that line um, between cyber warfare, you know, that the government is oftentimes engaged with, you know, you know, a, a, across the, the cyber boundaries is now really starting to pull in a lot of, you know, you know, household name businesses like Microsoft, like right. Cisco. Um, and you may actually see that that more organizations are susceptible or in those crosshairs, um, you know, of, of being involved in this cyber warfare. Than, than probably what you're typically used to to thinking about from a, a government on government perspective. But I think back to your original question, um, you know, as, as the government starts to unpack this and, and see what what potentially this could have had from a, an espionage perspective, they're looking to see, you know, what what potential types of um, you know tactics they may have to ch- have to change, what potential types of access that they 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 did get inside of the Treasury or Department of Homeland Security or some of the other you know impacted industries or impacted uh, areas of the government, and then take that data and try to to pivot and and, and obfuscate it and and hide it more. I think what we really need to look at is you know, the level of trust that we're putting into companies like SolarWinds and right. companies like Microsoft and some of these other third-party companies. Andy, to that end, it, it, one thing that really surprised me and opened my eyes in, in reading about the SolarWinds hack over the last few days was the reliance that the U.S. government has on third parties, the reliance that the U.S. government has on the private sector in order to keep this data safe. Because, you you know, you are only as strong as your weakest link, and if the software you're using can be accessed by rogue actors, then that's not necessarily an okay thing. Does this make the U.S. government question their reliance on the private sector for this type of work? You know, I don't know the answer to that question, to be honest. I mean, I I think one of the issues we have to sort of try to address as journalists is figure out what went wrong and why the U.S. didn't have, for all the money they spent on cybersecurity, why didn't they have a way to sort of flag the fact that hackers were in their networks for months at a time? Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know what the, the failure was. I mean, certainly, yes, they got into this third party, but um, I, don't, I don't, we don't understand yet why they were able to sort of stay in these networks so long undetected. Neil, what's your thoughts on, on that on that question, and, and especially when you think about the government thinking about kind of its supply chain, you know, tech, technologically? The, the, the government's really starting to expand out its reliance on third party. If you, if you look at some of the contracts that have happened over the last couple of years, especially as they move into some of their DOD uh, private cloud, uh, you know, uh, contract conversations between like Google and Amazon, um, you know, I don't think that we're going to see a decreased reliance on, on the private sector. I think that um, with the, the advent of the, 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 the government's cybersecurity maturity model that went into effect on the 1st of December, um, that's a move in the right direction to try to put some more controls in place to validate some of these companies and the, the, the protections that they're putting in place. Um, uh, you know, supposedly companies like SolarWinds and Microsoft have those controls in place and, and are that, that level of compliance. Um, but this gets back to what I was saying before, is that we, we have to assume that, that no system is impenetrable and we have to get used to, to the fact that we're going to see more and more of these cyber attacks. And can I assume that the U.S. is similar, similarly doing this on other governments as well, Neil? 
I, I think that that's absolutely fair. I think it, it, it's completely fair to assume that, that any government out there uh, in the world, whether it's, you know, Russian, U.S., Chinese, you know, India, you know, France, whatever the case is, they all yeah. have, you know, offensive cyber operations going on um, to try to protect their national sovereignty. Yeah. I had a question. Do you mind if I ask Neil a question? Go ahead. Really quickly, though, Andy. Neil, what's the, what's the precedent for this attack? Well, I'm trying to think of one that sort of, I mean, maybe the not pitch attack, but is there others that you could think of that sort of res- uh, resemble it in terms of its scope? Got about 30 seconds, Neil. Sure, absolutely. I, I think I think NotPetya is, is a good way to, to look at this from a, a, a global scale perspective. I think this is vastly different because the the control that an organization like SolarWinds from a singular company has um, was far greater than what we saw from a NotPetya. Plus, that was very driven by financial you know gain by the by the by the company that or the country that perpetuated it. This one was done for espionage, so I think the motives are vastly different. All right. Great stuff, guys. Thank you so much. That was really a wonderful deep dive uh, into that cyber attack. Annie Martin, cybersecurity editor at Bloomberg News on the uh, phone from New Jersey. Neil Bridges, cybersecurity advisor at Root Access Protection, consultant for tech training firm INE on the phone from Chicago. Uh, Get ready for more is all I'm going to say. Yeah. Turn on that two-factor authentication is what the (laughs) cybersecurity experts remind everybody. Yeah, right? I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Brian Yakman. He is Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager, Lead Manager of the YCG Enhanced Fund. That fund, by the way, in the 96th percentile over the past five years, returning nearly 16% on average annually, and counts some big names that you know, MasterCard, Nike, Moody's, among some of its top holdings. Brian is based in Austin, Texas. That's exactly where we find him. Uh, Brian, nice to have you here with Tim and myself. How are you? Well, it's great to be back. Uh, doing really well. Enjoying the season. Yeah, hey, every, everybody's just, uh, moving to Austin. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say that, Brian. How does it feel to be in like the, the coolest place in the world right now, in the U.S. for businesses, I guess? Well, we planned it that way, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's no, we, it's, it's great. Like we, you, you almost skipped the winter months here. So we were out caroling with our kids last night, bringing cookies to neighbors and such. And, huh. and you, you can go out in a T-shirt. Yeah, we could not do that here. Um, So let's talk about the market environment right now. I know you specifically look at names. So uh, right now where it feels like record after record, despite maybe a little bit lower today, um, are you finding opportunities right now or or feeling like you want to commit new money or is it just kind of uh, a holding strategy right now? So... I don't know if I'd say a whole lot of brand new names, um, but there are some names that we feel more excited about relative to others. Um, I think that, you know, it's no surprise to anybody that most stocks are way more expensive now. Um, But I think it may be a little bit of a surprise to some that that's the case with some of these recovery plays, uh, because even though their individual stock prices may be lower relative to the beginning of the year, you know, like airlines, cruises, hotels, Many of them are actually way more expensive when you look at the entire enterprise uh, divided by their cash flows. And, and I'm not just talking like 
next year's cash flows, but I'm saying even beyond into the recovery, they're looking way more expensive because they burned through so much cash and as they've incurred all these losses. And then they need to take on so much debt to survive. And uh, these businesses were saying, man, they're more expensive than they were at the beginning of the year despite not right. having recovered. Amazing, right? Um, but then you have other companies, uh, like you just mentioned, Moody's being in our top. Um, mm-hmm. We started to add to S&P Global. Um, and another one I bring up is Progressive. They've all had great, I mean, incredible business performance um, this year. But interestingly, their stocks haven't really participated and rebounded nearly as much as these others um, relative to the beginning of the year. I mean, they're doing well, but not they're not blowing things away. Progressive's up almost so, 40%. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, like their performance is, is, is killing it. But, but what I'm saying is when you adjust, when, when you look at price relative to their total, I'm looking at the total valuation, right? So their business, the stock price is up, mm-hmm. but it's not up nearly as much as you'd expect it to be given how well it's outperformed. Got it. So like if you look at like the SaaS companies, um, you know, they've all had great performance and a lot of acceleration of demand. And their stock prices, in a lot of cases, they've gone up way faster than revenues and cash flows. You know, like the Zooms, Shopify, Datadog, Twilio, all that stuff. But these guys, what I'm saying is their performance has also been amazing, but their stock prices haven't reacted. You'd think they'd be up just as much as all those guys. Right. That's a good point. And and I think it's because people are fearful that their good results were maybe just a one-time exceptional result, and that'll lead to a hard comparison next year. Uh, But we don't think that's necessarily the case. And really, to us, that's the kind of the perfect opportunity is when investors are saying, hey, this business is really great in the long run, but we're fearful that maybe it's going to have tough comparisons year over year. Now is not the time to buy it. Those short-term concerns usually lead to some of the best uh, mispricing opportunities. And especially, I was just going to say, and especially if it's connected to such a high-quality business, high-quality tends to almost perpetually be undervalued. And so we, we think investors are wetting both of those principles, leading to great opportunities in those companies. What do you think of just where we are right now, big picture? You know, we're, we're at this place where we're at the end of the year. The market has done incredibly well, but it's so disconnected from the actual real economy where millions of people are unemployed and underemployed. When is the market going to catch up to, to Main Street and, and see some sort of pullback? Well, I, I think that it's, you know, there's so much liquidity sloshing around, it's obvious. And, and there's no question that we see evidences of what just seem to be very speculative uh, type behavior across the board. But I think the problem is, is that when, when people are investing purely based on saying, well, I'm waiting or anticipating the pullback, I think those things are too difficult to predict. And we don't really know. Could this turn into like a Japan-like environment? You know, before the whole lost decades happened in Japan, the Shiller-Cape ratio, as an example, went up to about 90. We're at like a 30-something. Yeah. Mm. I'm not by any means saying, I think that, this is not me saying I'm super bullish and we sh- I think the market's going to double from here, triple. What I'm saying is, is that you can go for decades with a Cape ratio being highly elevated and with all the liquidity sloshing around, it's trying to find places to go. Right. And I think that the danger is people reaching for yield, trying to find it in probably some of the most dangerous places. And so we think the right move is just to own these global champions that have enduring pricing power so that you don't have to try to time the market right. You right. just know that well, 
You well, feel confident you're in a good place. Hey, listen, just got uh, about 45 seconds here. Wells Fargo is a name um, that you guys like. It's down 45% this year. When does it, and I understand, right, probably a great value play if it ultimately turns around. Um, is that what you're banking on? Yeah, I mean, it certainly is way cheaper than all the other great banks out there. We do own J.P. Morgan and Bank of America as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're kind of better one-stop business models um, globally. But, you know, I just, it's one of those that, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a value play that we think is a little bit too cheap to pass up. And uh, but unfortunately, we owned it before it became a problem. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not one we're proud to own, but it, it is a, it's, def- it's one of the few contrarian plays in the portfolio. Yeah, interesting stuff. Um, Listen, we always love talking names with you, Brian. So thank you so much, Brian Yuckman. He's Chief Investment Officer at YCG Investments, uh, joining us on the phone from Austin, Texas. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.